This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Looking Past Satan's Counterfeits of Joy. In the first half, Brian K. Ashton shares his address, Happiness, Deceit, and Small Things. Then in the second half, David Day speaks on Lessons of Pride and Glory from the Doctrine and Covenants. Brothers and sisters, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. Both Melinda and I graduated from BYU, and we love coming back. I prepared this talk with my children and my missionaries in mind. I'd like to talk with each of you from my heart, as if you were one of my children or my missionaries. Would you please take a moment to think about what you want in the future? I suspect that many things might enter your mind. Some of them might be quite short-term. Getting a date for the weekend, doing well on finals or your end-of-term paper, or finding transportation home for Christmas. Other desires might include longer-term dreams, having a happy marriage and family, getting into graduate school, obtaining a good job, achieving financial success, living in a certain location, or buying a new car. Whatever your hopes and dreams are for the future, I suspect that you want those things because you believe they will bring you happiness. Ultimately, happiness is what we all desire. When I was a student at BYU, I thought a lot about my future. I suspect you think a lot about yours as well. Once I got to the future, meaning life after BYU, I learned three critical lessons that made a big difference in my life. I want to share these lessons with you with the hope that you don't take as long as I did to learn them. They are lessons that can help you find greater joy in life and ultimately obtain exaltation with your Heavenly Father. Lesson one begins with a story. I met my wife Melinda during my sophomore year at BYU, about six months after I returned from my mission. I knew immediately that Melinda was the woman I wanted to marry. Melinda, however, did not have the same experience. It wasn't until five years later that she finally received an answer that it would be, quote, okay if she married me. During those five years, actually five and a half if you include our engagement, I had one of the more difficult trials of my life. I really wanted to be married. I knew whom I was supposed to marry, and the Spirit urged me on. But I couldn't seem to reach that goal. Nothing I did seemed to help our relationship move forward as quickly as I wanted. It was five-plus years of frustration and, more important, refinement for me. Shortly after I graduated from BYU, Melinda decided to go on a mission. In part, I am convinced to get away from me. I was concerned that while she served in Spain, my misery would increase as I waited for her. And there were times when I was miserable because I focused on what I didn't have and I failed to exercise faith in God's promises. However, I was studying the scriptures and praying daily, serving in the Church, and striving to do those things that brought the Holy Ghost into my life. One early, very cold Sunday morning in Minneapolis, while driving to a Church meeting, I thought, I should be really miserable right now. Nothing seems to be going the way I want, but I'm not miserable. I feel unbelievably happy. There were actually lots of moments of joy and happiness for me while Melinda was on her mission. I missed her, but I also remember that time as one of general happiness, 
My life wasn't perfect, and quite honestly, it still isn't. But for the most part, I was happy. Now, how could I be happy if I was going through what for me was a very difficult trial? The answer is found in Galatians 5:22 through 23. It reads, quote, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, unquote. This scripture teaches at least two great truths. One, when we feel the Spirit in our lives, which can refer to the Holy Ghost or the light of Christ, we feel love, joy, and peace. It is those feelings that make us truly happy. And two, the Spirit is the source or fount from which these blessings or fruits come. Consequently, because I was doing the things that brought the Spirit into my life, even amid what for me was a lot of turmoil and frustration, I felt God's love. I felt joy and peace. I could suffer long and still be happy. So lesson one is that if we want to feel love, joy, and peace, we must do the things that bring the Spirit into our lives. Another way to say this is that having love, joy, and peace in our lives, families, and marriages— does not come from a big house, nice cars, the latest clothing, career success, or any of the other things that the world says bring happiness. In fact, because feelings of love, joy, and peace come from the Spirit, feeling them doesn't have to be connected to our temporal circumstances at all. Thus, even in our most difficult circumstances, it is possible to be happy. This is one reason why just hours before his atonement and all the difficulties that would come with that experience for the Savior and his disciples, Jesus could tell his apostles to be of good cheer. Please understand, I am not saying that we will always be happy or that our temporal circumstances never affect our happiness. In fact, if we do not taste the bitter, we cannot know the sweet. We need to struggle at times. Furthermore, there are some physical and emotional conditions, such as clinical depression, that can cause us great suffering and make it very difficult for us to feel the Spirit. But if we're striving to have the Spirit in our lives and trusting God, we can, in general, be happy. I testify from personal experience that this is true. Since my experience while Melinda was on her mission, I have noticed that if I'm doing the things that bring the Spirit into my life, including choosing to believe and accept that things will work out as God intends, and that is critically important, I'm usually happy. So to summarize lesson one, true happiness comes from having the Spirit in our lives and cultivating an eternal perspective, and thus happiness is not dependent upon our circumstances. Lesson two is that Satan offers counterfeit alternatives to all that God does in an attempt to confuse and deceive us. But despite his attempts to convince us otherwise, the Savior teaches us that, quote, a corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit, unquote. Since Satan is a corrupt tree, he cannot cause us to feel love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Rather, Satan wants to make us miserable. So what does Satan do? He tries to deceive us. In fact, Heavenly Father has warned us that Satan's objective is, quote, to deceive 
and to blind men and lead them captive to his will, unquote. <coughs> now, Satan has been trying to deceive people for a long time, and the fact is he is very good at it. The Savior himself told us that this would be so. Speaking of our day, Jesus told his disciples in Jerusalem, quote, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. End quote. Let me share the story of a friend of mine, one of the elect who was deceived. My friend served a mission and was an outstanding missionary. When she came home from her mission, she intended to do all the little things that had brought the Spirit into her life and had strengthened her on her mission. And for a time, she did. However, she saw friends, many of whom were returned missionaries, come to church each Sunday. But outside of church, live as the world lived. They seemed happy. They were doing, quote, fun things. And their lifestyle didn't seem to require as much work as hers. Slowly, she stopped doing the little things that had brought spiritual strength on her mission. She still had a testimony, but she told me that she concluded, if I was just attending my church meetings, I was okay. I was on track. Nevertheless, she told me, spiritually, I was inactive. As she lived as the world lives, one bad choice led to another, and soon she was pregnant. Of course, as happens with each of us, her unrighteous choices eventually caught up with her. She wasn't happy, and she knew it. Fortunately, my friend recognized that she had been deceived, and she repented. She said, Obviously, I hit rock bottom. I knew if I wanted a good life and to be truly happy, I would have to be completely honest with myself and recognize that I needed help. I knew that God knew all my sins, and I came clean to Him. I told God, I'm sorry. I know I messed up. I'm turning back. I'm willing now. I'm happy to report that my friend's broken heart and contrite spirit helped her get through a long and difficult, yet very merciful, repentance process. Today, my friend is happy, striving to keep the commandments and physically and spiritually active in the gospel. Her story highlights that even the best of us can be deceived and become confused about the source of true happiness. Furthermore, her story points out that we must constantly guard against being deceived by doing the little things that bring the Spirit into our lives. Now, Satan's deceptions come in many ways. I will only mention a few here. Satan tries to convince us to prioritize temporal things over spiritual things. For example, we may begin to think that succeeding in school or earning a living, both good things, are the most important tasks in our lives right now. And because these tasks take a lot of effort and time, we may do them to the exclusion of truly important spiritual things. Now, we do have to have a balance in our lives. We do have to pay attention to temporal things. But sometimes we forget to exercise faith that God will help us to do necessary spiritual and temporal things. We can tell if our priorities are out of place by noticing how often we say, I'm just too busy or too tired right now to, and then fill in the blank, attend the temple, do my home or visiting teaching, study and ponder the scriptures, fulfill my calling, or even say prayers. 
One reason we feel so busy is that Satan works hard to make sure that we often feel distracted. He uses the smartphone in our hand, the radio in our car, the televisions in our homes, and a myriad of other things to keep us distracted almost all the time. As a result, we feel busier than we actually are. Another result of this distraction is that we are pondering less and less. Satan does this because he knows that pondering, especially the scriptures, leads to greater conversion and revelation. It also helps us to put the activities of our lives in proper perspective and prioritize correctly. What's more, it helps us internalize the principles that allow us to work through trials and doubts with faith. Most of us would do well to take more time to quietly sit and ponder. Another of Satan's deceptions is the idea that our outward actions matter more than our inward motivations. Too often, keeping the commandments becomes something that we do because it is on our checklist or because we want others to think that we are righteous, rather than keeping the commandments being a way to worship God, partake of the divine nature, and become more and more like Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father. This was part of my friend's problem. She was physically active at church, but because she cared more about what others thought of her rather than about worshiping God, she lacked real intent and her heart wasn't open to allowing the influence of the Holy Ghost to change who she was inside. When we lack the proper motivations in doing spiritual things, we fail to experience the joy of the gospel. As a result, keeping the commandments starts to feel like drudgery. And Satan knows that if he can get us to feel this way, we are likely to stop doing what we know we should. Now, it's never okay to not keep the commandments. When we lack the proper motivation, we still keep the commandments and pray with real intent to change our hearts. Satan also deceives us into believing that joy and happiness come from having an easy life or from having fun all the time. They do not. The truth is there's no joy or happiness without something to overcome. The happiest people I know are those who have challenges in their lives and are striving to overcome them. Because of their challenges, they rely upon God and in so doing feel His help and love in their lives. On the other hand, some of the most miserable people that I know do everything they can to avoid challenges. Now, I'm not saying that we want to manage our lives in such a way that we are overwhelmed all the time. Challenges will come our way. But for some of us, Satan too often convinces us to take the easy way, telling us that happiness comes from pleasure and ease. More often, we would be much happier taking the path of hard work, relying upon the Savior and getting out of our comfort zones. The last of Satan's deceptions that I will mention today is that he tries to convince us that wickedness, with its temporary pleasures, really is happiness. Satan knows that at least in the moment, certain feelings or emotions may A, make us think we are feeling the fruits of the Spirit, B, feel like acceptable substitutes, or C, mask our desire for those fruits. As Satan causes us to feel these emotions, we can become confused about what we really want. For example, Satan gives us lust in place of love. He gives us excitement instead of joy. Satan gives us distraction rather than peace. 
He gives us self-righteousness, zealotry, and political correctness in lieu of goodness. And in this confusion, we may begin to think that breaking the commandments will bring happiness. Here's one way some of the elect are confused about what really brings happiness. In For the Strength of Youth, the prophets have taught the following about sexual purity. Quote, Never do anything that could lead to sexual transgression. Before marriage, do not participate in passionate kissing. Lie on top of another person or touch the private sacred parts of another person's body with or without clothing. Do not do anything else that arouses sexual feelings. End quote. Yet too many young adults who at baptism and in the temple made sacred covenants to be obedient to the commandments of God find themselves looking at pornography, making out, or doing other things that arouse improper sexual feelings. Why? Because some have become confused, believing, even if just momentarily, that lust will make them happy. It cannot. At a minimum, these sins cause us to lose the spirit, deny the faith, and fear. And unless we repent, we will eventually find that we are very unhappy and we will leave a trail of carnage of lost and stolen virtue. So to summarize lesson two, Satan cannot produce the same feelings as the spirit. Consequently, Satan tries to deceive us with counterfeits that can never bring lasting happiness, and even the elect can be deceived if they are not careful. Lesson three is that it's usually the little things that bring the spirit into our lives, keep us from being deceived, and ultimately help us obtain the strength to keep the commandments and gain eternal life. The Savior taught this principle to the elders of the church at Kirtland, Ohio, in Doctrine and Covenants 64.33. Quote, Wherefore, be not weary in well-doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work, and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. Unquote. One meaning of this scripture is that the small things we do, such as studying and pondering the scriptures and praying daily, create the foundation upon which we obtain eternal life. Now, why are small things so important? In the verse following the one we just read, the Savior explained that the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind. Why did the Savior link doing small things with the heart and a willing mind? Because in consistently doing the small things, we yield our hearts and minds to God, maybe even more than in doing big things. Yielding our hearts to God causes us to wax stronger and stronger in humility and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ unto the filling our souls with joy and consolation, yea, even to the purifying and the sanctification of our hearts. This purification and sanctification changes our very nature, little by little, so that we become more and more like the Savior. They also cause us to be more receptive to the promptings of the Holy Ghost, which makes us less likely to be deceived. And it is those who have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide who have not been deceived. In other words, the small things change our hearts. And when our hearts are turned to Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, we can be physically and spiritually active in the gospel. Let me share with you one small thing that has made all the difference in my life. In my senior year of high school, my dad taught me seminary in our home. Since the topic of study that year was the Book of Mormon, my dad decided that we would read it together verse by verse and discuss what we learned. 
As we read, my dad would ask me questions that got me thinking about what we were reading, and he would explain things I didn't understand. I still remember reading Jacob 5 and discovering for the first time the Lamanites and Nephites among the branches that had been hidden in the nethermost parts of the vineyard. I remember learning about the Savior and sensing that he really did visit the Nephites and that I really could be forgiven of my sins because of his atonement. I traced my foundation in the scriptures to those sessions my dad and I had together. As I mentioned, I felt something as we read, and maybe more important, I noticed that my desires, motivations, and actions changed. I wanted to be better. I began to see where I was being deceived. I repented more often. After my senior year of high school, I continued to try to read the scriptures daily. That summer and into the fall, I wasn't as consistent as I should have been, but by the end of my freshman year of college, I was reading the scriptures every day. About this time, President Ezra Taft Benson asked members to read the Book of Mormon and apply what they learned daily. So in addition to whatever else I was reading, I read at least something from the Book of Mormon. On my mission, I learned how to really study and feast upon the scriptures. I learned to study with a question in mind. I found similar phrases and terminology in different parts of the scriptures and began to connect them in ways that enhanced my understanding of the doctrine. I slowed down so that I could ponder and pray about what I was reading. I learned to study topically and sequentially. Not only did I feel the Holy Ghost as I read, but I also started to feel joy as I searched the scriptures to find answers to my own problems and those of mine investigators. Best of all, my testimony of and my desire to follow Jesus Christ increased. After my mission, I continued to feast upon the scriptures daily. Because this practice invited the Holy Ghost into my life, I was more efficient. I was guided as to how to manage my time. I had inspiration come to me about how to solve problems which were often totally unrelated to what I was studying. I received help in identifying the highest priorities of the day. As a result, I did better in school and later at work. It was easier to make good decisions. I prayed more and was more diligent in fulfilling my callings. Feasting upon the scriptures daily didn't solve all my problems, but life was a lot easier because I was in the scriptures. In August 2005, President Gordon B. Hinckley issued a challenge to the members of the Church to read or reread the Book of Mormon before the end of the year. Since I was reading from the Book of Mormon daily anyway, I was already reading in Ether or Moroni when the Prophet issued this invitation. Consequently, upon finishing the Book of Mormon a week or two later, I concluded that I had completed his challenge. But then a faithful home teacher came to visit our family. He asked how I was doing with President Hinckley's invitation. I told him that I had the good fortune of starting the Book of Mormon before President Hinckley's challenge and finishing it after he issued it. Then, with some self-righteousness, I announced that I had completed the task. Fortunately, my home teacher saw things differently. As he gently corrected me, the Spirit whispered to me that he was right. Because I was still reading at least one chapter a day in the Book of Mormon, I had already restarted it. However, I realized I was going to have to read at least two chapters a day to finish the Book of Mormon again by the end of the year, in addition to any other studying that I was doing. As I increased how much I read in the Book of Mormon, I noticed that even more power came into my life. I had more joy. I saw things more clearly. 
I repented even more frequently. I wanted to minister to and rescue others. I was less susceptible to Satan's deceptions and temptations. I loved the Savior more. That November, I was called to be the bishop of our ward. Completing President Hinckley's challenge prepared me for that calling. Since then, I have noticed that the busier I have become either at work or at church, the more I need to be in the scriptures, especially the Book of Mormon. Now, you can have the same blessings and power in your life if you too will feast upon the scriptures daily, including the Book of Mormon. The prophet Nephi explained this promise to his brothers in 1 Nephi 15.24, quote, And I said unto them that the iron rod was the word of God, and that whoso would hearken unto the word of God and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish. Neither could the temptations and the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness to lead them away to destruction. What Nephi described in this verse is a covenant. Our part of the covenant is to A, hearken unto the word of God, which includes the scriptures, and B, hold fast unto it. How do we hold fast to the word of God? By studying it daily. As we then apply what we learn in our lives, we bind God to fulfill his part of the covenant, and his part is one, to ensure that we never perish, and two, to help us not be deceived by the temptations and fiery darts of the adversary that cause so many to be blinded and led away to destruction. I promise that if you'll feast upon the scriptures daily, especially the Book of Mormon, you'll invite the Spirit into your life. And you will naturally pray daily, repent more often, and find it easier to attend church and partake of the sacrament weekly. You see, when we feast upon the scriptures, we invite the Spirit of the Lord into our lives. And when we feel the Lord's Spirit, we want to do these other, quote, small things. Last April, during General Conference, President Thomas S. Monson made a similar promise. Let's listen to his words. My dear associates in the work of the Lord, I implore each of us to prayerfully study and ponder the Book of Mormon each day. As we do so, we will be in a position to hear the voice of the Spirit, to resist temptation, overcome doubt and fear, and to receive Heaven's help in our lives. I so testify with all my heart in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Isn't it a blessing to hear from a living prophet of God? I implore each of you to feast upon the words of Christ in the Book of Mormon daily. So to summarize Lesson 3, it is usually small things that bring the Spirit into our lives, keep us from being deceived, and give us the power to obtain eternal life. This is one reason the Savior told his apostles in the New Testament, quote, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. End quote. Brothers and sisters, the future can be wonderful, but to make it so, please learn the three lessons discussed today. As a reminder, these lessons are one, true happiness comes from having the Spirit in our lives and cultivating an eternal perspective. And thus, happiness is not dependent upon our circumstances. Two, Satan cannot produce the same good feelings as the Spirit, so he tries to deceive us with counterfeit feelings and ideas that can never make us happy. And three, 
Doing the small things consistently, like praying and studying the scriptures daily, brings the spirit into our lives, keeps us from being deceived, and gives us the strength to obtain eternal life. I testify that as you do the small things and trust the Lord, you can find love, joy, peace, and happiness regardless of your circumstances. I also testify that this is made possible because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All good things come because of him. He lives in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is looking past Satan's counterfeits of joy. We've just heard from Brian K. Ashton. After the break, we'll return with David Day for lessons of pride and glory from the Doctrine and Covenants. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is looking past Satan's counterfeits of joy. Next is David Day, BYU Harold B. Lee Library's Music and Dance Librarian at the time of this address, titled Lessons of Pride and Glory from the Doctrine and Covenants. I am both grateful and humbled to be with you today. It is often the case in church assignments that the one who is called to serve is not the most qualified. Rather, those with a need for growth or insight are given the task. I have been greatly blessed by my preparations, blessed in more ways than I could begin to share in the time allotted. I pray that through the influence of the Holy Ghost, you may benefit from what I have learned and that we may all be edified together this morning. In my preparations, I felt guided to focus my comments on the theme, Lessons of Pride and Glory, from the Doctrine and Covenants. I should clarify at first, this is not intended to be a pep talk about worldly notions of fame and glory or worldly honor and glory. Pride is a sin, the universal sin, as described by Ezra Taft Benson in his seminal conference address of April 1989. I have personally come to believe that pride is Satan's great counterfeit for glory. As with so many other principles and potential heavenly rewards, Lucifer seeks to deceive us by offering a lesser compromise that may for a moment bring gratification but ultimately leads to remorse and sorrow. And as for defining glory, well, we may ask ourselves, what is glory? What is the eternal nature of glory? Why is it mentioned so frequently in the scriptures? Why is it correct and even essential that we aspire to glory while the very notion of righteous pride is a grievous sin? What are the potential dangers in confusing the two. Within the Church, we refer often to the concept of glory. We speak of the three degrees of glory, as described in Section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. In President Joseph F. Smith's vision of the spirit world, among those assembled to greet the resurrected Lord, he noted the presence of our glorious Mother Eve. Many of the hymns that all Christians sing invoke glory to God suggesting a form of praise. In many scriptural passages, we are admonished to live with an eye single to the glory of God. Earlier versions of the BYU logo even prominently displayed the scriptural phrase, 
the glory of God is intelligence, as if to imply a mantra for our pursuit of truth at the university. I recall when I was a teenager and young adult, President Spencer W. Kimball, in a variety of church meetings, would often begin his remarks by stating what a glorious occasion it was to be gathered together. I confess that as a teenager, I failed to grasp what was so glorious about all these church meetings. But President Kimball's enthusiasm and his insistence that the occasions were glorious always left an impression in my mind. My point is that we tend to think of glory only in abstract terms, without giving careful thought to its full significance. In my personal study of the Doctrine and Covenants, the principles and narratives associated with glory have always commanded my attention. The word seems to jump off the page in each appearance and invite me to ponder its meaning. Before exploring specific passages, I feel impressed to declare my sincere witness and testimony that the voice that speaks to us from the Doctrine and Covenants is that of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Latter-day Prophets, past and present, have boldly declared, Jesus Christ is the true source of leadership and guidance to the Church. This witness from the Holy Ghost burns so brightly and clearly in my heart that I cannot read the text from any other perspective. I love the Doctrine and Covenants. I find it fascinating that so many of the revelations recorded in this volume of Scripture are personal blessings given to early members of the Church seeking the Lord's guidance. I believe these highly personal instructions are meant to be applicable in each of our lives today as we struggle with similar questions and challenges. I believe that only when we come to hear the voice of Jesus Christ speaking to us personally is the true significance of each passage manifest. In exploring the lessons of glory and its antithesis pride, I have organized my comments in three phases or subtopics. First, let's review a couple of well-known scriptural definitions of glory, familiar to even beginning students of the gospel. Second, I would like to focus in detail on references to glory found in relation to the establishment of Zion in Jackson County, Missouri. Finally, we will look closely at a few passages from the Doctrine and Covenants that point to a more important and eternal significance of glory. First, the review. LDS scriptures offer unique and profound explanations of God's glory not found in the Bible. In the book of Moses, in the Pearl of Great Price, God reveals that his work is devoted to the progression of his children. God spoke to Moses, saying, The heavens, they are many, and they cannot be numbered unto man. But they are numbered unto me, for they are mine. And as one earth shall pass away, and the heavens thereof, even so shall another come. And there is no end to my works, neither to my words. For behold, this is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. I have already referred to section 93, verse 36, where the simple yet sublime truth is declared. The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Here the concept of glory is linked to principles of knowledge and understanding. This passage offers unique insight to the nature and character of God. Gone is the sectarian notion that God's glory is based primarily in the splendor of his abode. The interrelationship of glory, intelligence, light, and truth 
is further illuminated in the same section 93. In it we learn that Christ, through his obedience, has obtained a fullness of the glory of the Father. As Christ is our model in all things, we learn that we too, through obedience to the commandments, may eventually receive the same fullness. I give unto you these sayings, that ye may understand and know how to worship, and know what you worship, that ye may come unto the Father in my name, and in due time receive of his fullness. For if ye keep my commandments, ye shall receive his fullness, and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. This reference to receiving a fullness of the Father recalls similar scriptures in which the fullness of the Father is tied to a fullness of joy. Speaking to the three Nephite disciples, given the blessing to linger on earth until his second coming, Christ offered this promise and insight. Ye shall have fullness of joy, and ye shall sit down in the kingdom of my Father. Yea, your joy shall be full, even as the Father hath given me fullness of joy. And ye shall be even as I am, and I am even as the Father, and the Father and I are one. In section 93, our understanding of glory is further enlarged to embrace knowledge as an essential foundation. Just as the glory of God is intelligence, and intelligence is light and truth, we learn also that truth is knowledge, that is, the knowledge of things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. Speaking of the advancement of Zion, the Lord closes the 93rd section with an admonition of learning. And verily I say unto you that it is my will that you should obtain a knowledge of history and of countries and of kingdoms, of laws of God and man, and all this for the salvation of Zion. Joseph Smith was faithful to the Lord's commandment to obtain knowledge. Although he and other members of the church were burdened with enormous task of translating and publishing scripture, preaching the gospel, building temples and settling cities, all this and more, while still enduring bitter persecutions, still Joseph made time to establish a school of the prophets and even became a serious student of Hebrew. In comparison, how fortunate we are to attend this university and pursue knowledge in circumstances comparatively free from distraction. How glorious, in a way, is our opportunity for learning. With that brief review, let's now move to our second subtopic, an examination of promised glory as the early church endeavored to establish Zion, or the New Jerusalem. Reference to the New Jerusalem appears in the Doctrine and Covenants as early as section 45, given in March 1831. Section 57 begins with a pronouncement that in its day of July 1831 must have been stunning, and which today is still quite astounding. Hearken, O ye elders of my church, who have assembled yourselves together, in this land, which is the land of Missouri, which is the land which I have appointed and consecrated for the gathering of the saints. Wherefore, this is the land of promise and the place for the city of Zion. In the following section of 58, speaking of the gathering to Jackson County, the Lord offered those who had been called the following promise of glory and a caution of foreseen tribulations. You cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning those things which shall come hereafter, and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. For after much tribulation come the blessings. 
Wherefore the day cometh that ye shall be crowned with much glory. The hour is not yet, but nigh at hand. The Lord begins section 59. Behold, blessed saith the Lord, are they who have come up to this land with an eye single to my glory. Please keep these promises in mind, especially section 58. I will refer to it again later. The stage had been set. Remarkable promises offered. Those living the experience of this period must have felt enormous anticipation and hope that Christ would soon return to the temple they would build in the New Jerusalem. From March 1831 to October 1838, Joseph Smith received the revelations that comprise sections 45 through 124 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Careful examination shows that all these instructions concerning Zion that we now interpolate to the present day are, in fact, specific references to the attempts to settle in Missouri. In other words, as we study the Doctrine and Covenants today, we generally consider references to Zion as intended for the Church today. This is appropriate, as Nephi taught. We may liken the scriptures to ourselves, and we are still in the process of endeavoring to establish Zion. In the original context of these revelations, however, Zion referred specifically to the efforts to settle in Independence, Missouri, as opposed to the stake of Zion in Kirtland, Ohio. During this period, Joseph Smith remained primarily in Kirtland, where he received instruction concerning his work translating the Bible and the building of the Kirtland Temple. Other revelations were directed to the saints in Missouri, located about 800 miles away. In order to better understand the efforts to obtain glory in Zion, Let's take a focused look at a section of the Doctrine and Covenants which at first reading might appear insignificant. I refer to section 62, a revelation received in the context of a chance meeting along the road between Independence and Kirtland. In mid-August 1831, Joseph Smith was returning to Kirtland from Independence and encountered a group of elders as they were en route to Missouri after having preached the gospel in the surrounding regions. The two groups paused briefly as they crossed paths. In the Revelation, the elders who had been preaching were blessed for the testimony they had borne. They were told that the angels rejoiced over their testimonies and that their sins were forgiven. They were then admonished to continue to gather in Zion and promised the Lord's blessings if they remained faithful. The Revelation closes with some personal instruction that might seem irrelevant today but I believe actually contains a priceless lesson, one which will help us better understand the nature of glory and how to distinguish glory from pride. As with so many other revelations, this counsel appears to have been given in response to a specific request, one that is easy to imagine as we envision these elders on a hot and humid mid-August day, probably walking along a dusty road. I, the Lord, am willing, if any of you desire to ride upon horses or upon mules or in chariots, he shall receive this blessing, if he receive it from the hand of the Lord, with a thankful heart in all things. These things remain with you to do according to judgment and the directions of the Spirit. What do horses, mules, and chariots have to do with glory? Why would a revelation given during a chance meeting along the roadside be preserved for our instruction today? Here is the lesson that I believe is still crucial. The Lord desires to bless us in all our efforts to build his kingdom, 
if we have need of tools or resources or some advantage in our stewardships, the Lord is eager to grant our needs and desires. But the Lord does not offer a solution without effort on our part. First, we must have faith. Second, we must receive such blessings from the hand of the Lord with a thankful heart. And finally, the task remains with us, and we must use judgment as directed by the Spirit. I will come back to this lesson in a minute. Unfortunately, time will allow only for a cursory examination of the promised glory of Zion. Due to a variety of complications, including human frailties and intense persecution, by 1838, repeated efforts to establish Zion in Missouri had all failed. The exterminating order issued by Governor Lilburn Boggs in October 1838, the Hans Mill Massacre shortly thereafter, and the incarceration of Joseph Smith and other church leaders left the saints no alternatives. The next place of gathering would become Nauvoo, Illinois. It is difficult to imagine, but we should try to empathize how devastating and discouraging this setback must have been for the early members of the Church. Almost everyone involved probably lost much of their life's wealth and possessions. How chastened they must have felt to realize that the New Jerusalem would be postponed. As I ponder the evolution of events that has brought the Church to its present situation from Missouri to Nauvoo, the migration to Utah, and eventually to the current worldwide expansion, I often wonder how those who lost the vision of Zion in Missouri and the promised glory of Section 58 would judge us today. Would they look at our prosperity and feel that after the forewarned trials and tribulations, Zion has finally been redeemed? If they could walk with us here on this beautiful campus, if they could visit all the church facilities and the holy temples found in many lands throughout the world, if they could visit our spacious and finely appointed homes, what would they think of our circumstances? If they could behold modern transportation and technology, and how these have facilitated the growth of the Church and advanced its mission, would they feel that we have arrived at the promised glory they were not permitted to obtain? I can only imagine that early saints would have been amazed if in their day they could have seen how far we have come today. Still, I do not know if all that we enjoy today constitutes a full realization of the promised glory of Section 58. Remember how I opened my address today. I argued that pride is a counterfeit for glory. I worry that we as a people can mistake worldly wealth and advantage for glory when in fact these are shallow illusions that can cause us to miss the mark. A decade has passed since President Benson's discourse on pride. Yet his warning is still urgently relevant. As President Benson noted, the Lord warns us in the Doctrine and Covenants, Beware of pride, lest ye become as the Nephites of old. An entire sermon might be devoted to the analysis of the pride of the Nephites in the Book of Mormon. Suffice it to say that the nature of their cyclical problem was an inability to prosper and grow wealthy as to the things of the world, without becoming distracted and losing sight of God's greater blessings. Their wealth became a self-serving preoccupation, leading to hypocrisy and contention. President Benson taught, The central feature of pride is enmity, enmity toward God and enmity toward our fellow men. Enmity means hatred toward, hostility to, or a state of opposition. 
It is the power by which Satan wishes to reign over us. Let's return to Joseph and the elders as they met by chance on that hot and dusty road between Independence and Kirtland. Remember the lesson. The Lord does truly desire to bless us. I personally believe that when it comes to the establishment of Zion or the building of his kingdom here on earth, he delights in providing our righteous desires when we ask in faith, are grateful, and seek the guidance of the Spirit in performing our labors. I believe this is one process by which an earthly or temporal measure of glory is realized. Indeed, this is part of the process that has enabled us to reach our current situation. When we seek the Lord's counsel and assistance to do His will, He can and does bring to pass remarkable accomplishments. But there is a fine line between glory and pride. When we place our own personal vanity and greed before the will of the Lord, we confuse glory and pride and fall into the trap that plagued the Nephites of old. Confusing personal ambitions with the Lord's designs for His kingdom can also lead to the enmity that President Benson warned against. Now let's move on to the third phase in our consideration of glory. Of all the references to glory in the Doctrine and Covenants, two attract my attention with special strength and persistence. After chastening some in the Church for irreverent use of His name, the Lord declared, These things remain to overcome through patience, that such may receive a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In this reference, the Lord does not elaborate we are left to ponder what eternal nature of glory is reserved for the faithful and repentant. A similar description is found in section 132, a major revelation on the new and everlasting covenant of eternal marriage. In describing the state of those who marry for eternity as opposed to those who are married by an earthly contract, the Lord declared, These are worthy of a far more and an exceeding and an eternal weight of glory. Could this be the glory spoken of in section 58? Ye cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. In verse 19, the Lord gives an answer and a glimpse into this eternal nature of glory. Again, referring to the righteous who marry in the new and everlasting covenant, we learn the following of their state in the world to come. And they shall pass by the angels and the gods which are set there to their exaltation and glory in all things, which as hath been sealed upon their heads, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever and ever. The fullness mentioned here probably refers to the fullness of the Father's glory, knowledge, and joy discussed earlier. We understand the continuation of the seeds to be the eternal binding of family relations and the eventual capacity to bear spirit children of our own, as we ourselves are spiritual children of our heavenly parents. While the full extent of these blessings is beyond our present comprehension, I believe there are great lessons to be learned when we begin to link the importance of our families with our quest and expectations for glory. Our priorities in life can become clearer, and by treasuring our families we can taste a measure of heavenly glory here on earth. On the other hand, if we equate our quest for glory to temporal and worldly measures of wealth, possessions, power, and influence, you can see how easy it is to be deceived and to fall into traps of pride and hypocrisy. I conclude by sharing a recent experience with a young family that I home teach. 
Let me introduce the family of Coram and Jennifer Hughes. Coram, spelled with a C, and Jennifer have three lovely daughters. Kula, spelled with a K, Marcelina, and Sophia. Coram and Jen are the salt of the earth. They live humbly in a basement apartment, yet constantly reach out to others in service and sharing. Neighbors in the ward are often invited to share Sunday dinners at their home. On a recent occasion, I brought along some cookies to contribute to the meal. Their oldest daughter, Kula, age three, loves to eat. She takes her food very seriously and relishes every bite. When the time came to set out the cookies, Kula was full of excitement. I will never forget the expression on her face of absolute joy and eager anticipation as she reached across the table for one of the cookies. Wise and responsible parents that Coram and Jen are, and being cautious about sugar intake, Kula's father intercepted the large cookie she had selected and proceeded to break it in half. In the same way that I will never forget Kula's excited anticipation, I will never forget the instant change in her countenance at receiving only half the cookie she had hoped for. Everyone with toddlers of their own is all too familiar with the scene that followed. Uh, Kula's fleeting joy was quickly dissipated into protests of anger and uncontrollable tears. We decided to spare everyone the embarrassment of a photo with the tears and anger. We're all familiar with moments like this. There was an awkward silence and despondence in Coram's face as he looked at me with a sense of apology, as if to say, well, isn't this just glorious? The moment was too much to resist. I looked at him and said, Coram, you are the man. You have family. Coram is a humble and unassuming person. He is working hard to establish a career. He even commutes to Washington State every week in efforts to complete a master's degree to improve his employment options. Given the awkwardness of the moment, it is easy to understand that he seemed a little discouraged about his situation. I did my best to reassure him that the worldly advantages he may lack at present matter little in the eternal designs of our Heavenly Father. Many worldly enticements can even be dangerous counterfeits for the true treasures of glory to be found in our simple, sometimes problematic, and always imperfect family relations. I close with my witness of God's love for all of His children. How wonderful and joyful it is to know that Christ speaks to each of us personally through the revelations of the Doctrine and Covenants. I pray that our Savior's blessings will be with each of us as we aspire to return to His presence with our families and partake of His eternal and exceeding weight of glory and happiness. I ask this blessing humbly in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Looking Past Satan's Counterfeits of Joy with thoughts from Brian K. Ashton and David Day. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.